welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone that I'm continuing a conversation with that I that I had years ago at a show, and that I've wanted to continue this conversation since I started the show, David Bazan from Pedro the Lion and from uh, work under a solo name from Coolidge and, and all sorts of stuff we'll talk about later on when you listen to the show. And trust me, this is a good one. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. And he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work that you do for the show. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it. Let everyone know that, you know, that we have this podcast here that you enjoy. You can also, uh, head over to turn and pick up a t-shirt, uh, the design for the show. Um, and, uh, thank you to everyone who has done that. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash turn it a punk where I put up, uh, Turned out a punk footnotes with Chris O'Toole. There's lost episodes. There's video versions of some of the episodes. There's all sorts of stuff over there. So thank you to everyone that has checked that out. And uh, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Uh, and that is that. I, I play in a band too. We're called Fucked Up. Uh, we will be going on tour. Former label mates with David Bazan and Pedro the Lion. We talk about that a little bit in the show. It's, it's, it's a good part. Uh, and we will be going on tour. Uh, coming up in uh, the March. Yes, March we'll be going to the UK and doing some shows over there. And uh, you can come find out more information at fuckedup.cc. Uh, we also have a bunch of records that have been reissued recently, including Epics of Minutes on vinyl for the first time on the great Get Better Records. We also have David Comes to Life's 10th anniversary on Matador Records. And then there's... Uh, Oh yeah, Scotty Karate has put out our Year of the Horse, a double LP of a song. One song on a double LP. Don't worry, it's a long song. Uh, so find out more information about all that over there at fuckedup.cc. Uh, and Turned Out a Punk Live will be coming to the incredible Tree Fort Festival. That's right, get ready. If you're going to Tree Fort, uh, there will be a Turned Out a Punk Live event. Uh, there will be guests that I will be announcing shortly, and I will be there, uh, you know, doing 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 some uh, some punk rock yarn spinning, as it were, you know, telling some stories and connecting some dots on some punk rock worlds and and things like that. And so I look forward to seeing you there if you're at the Tree Fort Festival. More info at treefortmusicfest.com and. Uh, yeah, the lineups for this thing's ridiculous. Like, there's so many incredible bands playing. Uh, there's, there's, yeah, it, it looks wild. So, that's going to be in Boise. I'm going to be down in Boise, Idaho, and then I'm going to be going over to uh, England to, to tour with Fucked Up right after. Gosh, it feels like the olden days. I feel like I'm, I'm back in the world. I'm going to have to leave my basement. It's going to feel very weird to be doing that again. Uh, I really enjoy life in the basement. Uh. Okay, well, that is, uh, that is that for the, that part of the show. Now, on to the real part of the show, this conversation with David Bazan. I was a fan of Page of the Lion for a long time. Tristan, of course, uh, well, 
not of course, but go on Instagram and check out the Turn It a Punk Instagram that Tristan does. He posted his Page of the Lion collection, and you will see that he is a unbelievable super fan of Page of the Lion as well. And so years ago, he and I went to a show and met uh, Damien Giordo backstage and met um, and Dave Bazan backstage and kind of talked to them about punk and hardcore. And this is, I, I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think it was 99, 99 or 2000. And uh, I had this great conversation with about them, with them both about punk. And for years, Tristan and I have wanted to have, you know, David on and, and Damien as well, hopefully at some point too, to kind of continue this conversation. And well, here we are. And not only do, do we the, continue that conversation, but we go way deeper. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited for you to hear this one. Also, take notes on on uh, some of the stuff comes up in this episode because there's another episode coming up in a, a couple of weeks and I'm just amazed at how much stuff from this episode winds up being talked about in that episode too. I don't know, that's a really cryptic uh, teaser thing, but uh, anyway, I'm, I'm excited for you to hear this episode. <laughs> Forget about what I said about the future episode. Just l- listen to this one. Uh, that is that. Uh, of course, there is a brand new fantastic Page of the Lion record that you can check out now. It's on all the streaming services and will be coming out in physical form. I think you can still very, uh, I think you still very much pre-order this thing too, because I don't think the physical forms have hit the shelves yet, but Havasu is the name of the album. And if you are a fan of Page of the Lion, this is, uh, yeah, this, this is great. You will love this. You know, someone who never really disappoints, uh, but that is that. All right. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy David Bazan on Turned Out a Punk. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, uh, we had this, we started this conversation. Uh, you and Damien played here back in two, no, 90 something. And we had a conversation mm. backstage about punk rock. And ever since then, I knew by hook or by crook, you were going to be on this show one day. I didn't even have the show as a conceptual idea in my head, but I knew one day we would talk about punk rock one way or the other. So David, thank you for making it happen. Yeah. Thank you too. I'm psyched. Well, I got to start off the way they all start off, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, um, when I was a kid, I was only allowed to listen to Christian music. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of uh, limited to the tapes and the later the CDs that were available on the shelf at the Christian bookstore. Okay. And at a certain point, I'm trying to think, you know, I listened to like basically like Christian rock. And as I grew up, like seventh grade, I found records that resonated more than this sort of like hokier um, stuff. This, well, long story short, eventually I just got restless. I think I found the Beatles and then I liked the Beatles a lot. And I was like the first quote unquote secular music that I had been allowed to listen to. And then I stopped being allowed to listen to it. Mm. And so then I was hungry for something that had a realer kind of texture or just it wasn't propaganda, basically. And so I started finding, quote-unquote, heavier music at the Christian bookstore. Um, And so then I found, essentially, like, 
what would have been labeled Christian punk bands. This was before, like there's this, there's Christian labels called like Tooth and Nail and these things, but this that didn't exist when I was trying trying to find my way. Um, this would have been in like 89, 90, 91. And um, so I found, I listened to a, a few bands that kind of were ostensibly in that genre, but were in some cases essentially like youth pastors who were <laughs> trying to make music that would connect with their kids or something. And then I found this band called The Crucified. Um, and that was like uh, like hardcore punk of a, of a type that m actually mirrored what would have been happening in like the quote unquote real world of punk rock music, at least sonically and um, in terms of, um, I don't know, it just, it spoke to me more than, than the other things that I had heard. And um, I, uh, and then at that point I moved to Seattle and, and met Damien uh, the first day that I went to the high school that I did my sophomore and junior and senior year at uh damien gerardo mm -hmm. and we started playing in a band that day he was like hey because somebody had been you know that first day of school oh there was another band that i had found in the meantime called scattered few which was like um pretty i mean like crucified at that point would have been like pretty conventional like hardcore punk um in terms of the sounds and the the riffs and the the, the the song structures and stuff. And then Scattered Few is like, at the time, I think like it, 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 it had some like, maybe some like Jane's Addiction influences, but it was, it was pretty wild compared to anything that I had heard. And so when I showed up to school, you know, the first day people are like, what's your deal? And I was like, well, I'm like a Christian and I, you know, I like punk rock music, you know, in my mind at the time, that's how I would have thought of myself. And then they were like, oh, you got to, have you met this guy, Damien? And I was like, no. And so then like on the way to sixth period, apparently both of us were late. This is kind of like a movie, but we were both late. The bell had rung, the halls were empty. And we walked across this long hallway past each other. And as soon as we passed each other, I think we both registered that other people had been telling us about, like, you got to meet this guy. And I turned around and I was like, are you Damien? And he was like, are you Dave? And I was like, yeah. And I actually had the CD of this crucified record called Pillars of Humanity, like on me. And I like, and I showed it to him and he was like, yeah, man. He was like, do you play drums? And I was like, yeah, I do. And so he said, do you want to come and play drums in in our band this afternoon? I was like, well, I got to call my dad and find out. And so I did. And then we started playing music together that day. And um, the way that the, the pro progression works in my head, it was through that being in that group with him and this guy called Brian Glennie, who's now like a philosophy professor and like skateboard like he, him and his family are like pretty hardcore like skateboarders his wife and his kids and like it, you know but at the time 
you know, on the way to band practice, they played Fugazi in the car. It was Steady Diet that I heard first. And I feel like for me, Fugazi was my entry point and also kind of because them as a band just never stopped moving mm. in terms of song structures and sounds and and you know, they took that format of two guitars, bass, and drums and like kept reinventing themselves. That that was my entry point into what I think of now as punk music and also kind of have remained the my favorite. I mean, they're just still one of my favorite bands. I get so much out of those records even now and understand and like, yeah, I they were just doing such complex things. So that's how, that's sort of like the, the, the slow progression into it. And then at that point, you know, I think like I was hearing Nirvana and, um, you know, some of like the punk or grunge, like the Melvins. Um, and, but I, I, you know, and, and through those guys, especially through Brian, like I would hear like Gorilla Biscuits and like, um, inside out and the descendants and things like this but i never i never like owned a lot of those uh records i really kind of as fugazi kept putting out records like i got further and further into them uh maybe like drive like jehu like i spent um some more time with on my own um and then i was also discovering kind of all of rock and roll for the first time. So like U2 and The Cure and like Depeche Mode, like alternative rock radio would have been playing all that stuff. Um, and so I was like taking it all in and, and, and hearing it for the first time. And then it was years after that, that I went back and even lit, like understood classic rock. Like I was on tour in 2000 and me and the drummer and my booking agent um drummer at the time and my booking agent for the last 23 years we were driving through montana listening to classic rock radio and i was like hey i kind of admitted like i didn't know anything and i was like hey can you just tell me like i don't know what i've heard some of this music but i don't know could you just like tell me what it is and so he was like okay well what's do you know what this band is and i was like no and he was like it's van halen <laughs> and i was like okay cool like I, I get it so like i had i i just was really ignorant um and, and unexperienced with like the whole history of of rock and roll um except for the beatles which i had kind of continued to sneak in in, in little ways mm -hmm. um and so yeah really it was wanting and i and i toward the end of of like being stuck at the christian bookstore i was listening to like thrash metal and like christian thrash metal mm -hmm. to be clear <laughs> <laughs> um but it really was fugazi that i found kind of a home in and also because i grew up christian um music was a vehicle for a message mm -hmm. um and really not valid on its own in a way mm -hmm. and so I, if i was gonna connect with the band um like i needed to there's some of that in there mm -hmm. and fugazi definitely had like i feel like i was kind of radicalized by fugazi in a way because like reclamation 
and um, Suggestion. And these songs were sort of about politics, but more about like body politics Mm -hmm. in a way that I hadn't, you know, like a a friend who was a a girl who liked Fugazi too, I was singing Suggestion and singing the the lyrics wrong. And she was like, that's not how it goes. And I was like, oh, how does it go? And she said, and she's like, do you even know what the song is about? And I was like, I don't think so. So she's like, you should listen close to that song. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And so I did. And so for me, it was a, it was an education as well into it, like a certain way of thinking about ethics and, and then also how they worked as a band, like, uh, uh, or the legend of, you know, how they worked as a band. I, um, and the, the ethics of of business, the business of music, and then seeing them play. And that was really kind of like, not the total of my experience with what might directly be considered like stylistically punk and also ethically punk and like all the ways that, all the different things that supposedly are punk, but they, they seem to exist within that band for me. And then also mm-hmm. as a drummer, I just couldn't get enough of, of the way that Brendan Canty wrote and played and and that and so i just stayed hooked into that and that was sort of my gateway and my touch point almost the whole time uh, that i was it's it's amazing with fugazi like uh, you know like in recent sort of years of doing the podcast i've kind of come to this like idea that that your involvement with punk or you know broadly termed punk like hardcore like alternative sure. you know that that is all it's almost like not to overstate it but it is almost like a religious thing in the same way you carry it with you your whole life and like you're talking about how these bands existed to convey a message it's the same with fugazi like fugazi was was almost like opening this world to you and like you know the very political like everything about yeah. the, the ethics of the band like it was a secular religious band in a lot of ways true and like five corporations like a few years later on end hits like they they were you know they were predicting and like mm. there there's like a you know i grew up with the word prophetic in, in ways that was really wrong and distorted but like they they saw things mm-hmm. and talked about the things that they saw and from their vantage point is maybe like i don't know if they were exactly rich kids in the dc area but like they saw all the bullshit that was happening and and decided to to talk about it and sing about it and yeah it yeah, it's true it, it well, and the, the the kids that I was friends with in school were like, you know, they had like the the X and the the hardcore straight edge, yeah. um, you know, insignia on their backpacks and stuff. And I I never claimed like straight edge, even though I was technically straight edge because I was a Christian kid who didn't drink or smoke or wasn't into promiscuity or what you know. I, I I'm sure every straight edge little mini community tradition has their own sort of like respectability codes <laughs> in terms of what constitutes straight edge but i i never claimed that because it seemed disingenuous because that's not how i came to my my stances on those things but all my pals uh, or many of them were at school and um there is like a there's a belonging and there's like a code to those like traditions within punk rock and hardcore and some of them get pretty dogmatic in the negative way that religion can often does but 
it's not always that way. It can be a source of, you know, obviously personal strength. And, and so, yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's funny you bring up the X because I, <laughs> I wore the X's on my hands for a little bit as a kid because I yeah. wasn't secure enough to be straight edge and not wear the X's on my hands at that point. Um, and it was my dad who, who very much an atheist was, was like, that's a religious symbol. Like you're taking up religion and you're Ooh. doing this on this thing. Like that, that was one of the things that really bothered him about wearing the X's on my hands that I was. How fascinating that was your pop that did, man, that's so interesting. And how did you respond to that as a kid? I got more into it. You know, that was my, yeah. that was like, oh, you don't like this. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm all in. And like you're saying, Rebellion. and it is, it is one of those things that, you know, it's not as dogmatic and at times as extreme as religion, but then there are also times where specifically straight edge, it gets pretty extreme, like hardline stuff, like blowing up McDonald's, like Lake city. Like... Yeah. Yeah. There's, and then even like Jello by Africa getting his leg broken because he quote unquote was involved with sellouts by people at the Gilman in like the late nineties, you know, it's like all of this stuff is like where this adherence to this thing that, that you're right. Like is filling this void in people like young people that they're looking for this belonging, you know, it yeah. can be driven to extremes and there are definitely examples where it does have the same dangers to it as religions in some ways. Well, and that's why, you know, you know, Ian gets kind of, dissed or made fun of or like whatever but like I, I you know as the coiner of that phrase if I'm not mistaken like he was like no like that's mm -hmm. not like you know I, I, I feel yeah I felt like he was as responsible as as a person could be with the with the way that he was sort of like made into an icon and the things that he sang about I guess before Fugazi but like yeah, and and the music and the the music is is you know I only went to a few shows that would have been considered like hardcore shows and and I remember like the feeling of the music is is really yeah it 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 inspires devotion. I mean, it really touches a, a part, especially as a young uh, speaking as like a young male like mm -hmm. it just there's a lot of the there it's aggressive in a way but it's also um there's a sensitivity to it that's just mm -hmm. built in because it's music and it touches that sensitivity but it, it um yeah I, it's really powerful um yeah and i think you're right with with especially young males or young men like where they're mm -hmm. there's a uh there's something in it like a love you know, like you're, you're, yeah. like you're like, I love you. I love this music. I, you know, yes. it's like one of the few places that you can be aggressive and express vulnerability as, yes. you know, in music. It's for, permission for to love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to feel that yeah. and because it's coupled with aggression, it's, it's maybe less weak feeling, yeah. you know, than feeling that to like a Richard Marks song or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know? Yeah, totally. And it's the same sort of emotion, but like, you can hide it in a way because it's like a loud yeah. guitar and the guy's screaming, but it's still yeah. like the same sort of yearning to, to feel this. Uh, yeah. That's kind of really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's, it's beautiful. And then as we're talking, it also can be perversed in a way yes. too. Like all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, once again, not to drive the religious thing into the ground, but like you're saying with Ian, like 
you you come up with these ideas you you put them out on paper and then you put them out into the world you have no idea how your word's going to be interpreted exactly. and how it's going to be taken by other people and that's i think ian's you know would be the first to admit that's kind of what happened with straight edge well and it's funny because like i've been an alcoholic and i've been um like i've smoked a lot of weed and to cope with pain and to cope with um just like uh spiraling disappointment and things that I just couldn't seem to like break out of. And, and his words, his specifically, his words come to me all the time. Like, why are you dulling the blade? Like, what is the, and, and I've had a like a, like a push pull relationship with that. Like sometimes I've really resented that. And it was just sort of like, it's so funny how it works, but like another line of his would come back, like you will do what looks good to you on paper and we will do what we must 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 and i know that that's in the context of like you know a, a ostensibly abortion or whatever or just control of, of 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 women's bodies specifically but in that moment it's just like i've you know like i didn't i'm not doing this yeah there was almost like a it not there was like a way of like i i don't feel like that 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 phrase like why do you dull the blade like really takes into account like what it feels like to be in this constant position where you're in just so much pain and maybe therapy at that point in time for for years or whatever there's other pathways but sometimes you just don't feel like you have a choice like there's you know and and that's but i i guess all that to say like he ian has has really occupied a, a very uh positive and conversational space in my brain mm -hmm. in terms of like i'm not i'm not like into gurus or wouldn't put him on that kind of pedestal he's just a singer in a band you know yeah but like the way that he put himself into his art and gi obviously also but like ian's lyrics are a little bit more direct and kind of uh confrontational and in, in like a certain way that continues to I continue to grow from conversing with the tradition that is Bugazi's records, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, well, it's, it's like, you're saying like these people end up becoming like, you have these conversations with these people in your mind, like these people become separate from who they are as an individual. Like Ian's the first yeah. person to say, like he made all these songs about him and like, yes, exactly. you do you, I'll do me. But at the same time, like we take it up and these become like, you're saying like guru type figure, like the aspirational, things that are chase and and we try and live up to and also at the same time become a burden on us at different times yeah. like so many people talk about the little ian on their shoulder telling them not to sign to the major label you know and it's or there's a really great um interview that he did uh, where they like go through the history of discord and they sort of play the, him and a dj like they play tracks from like the whole like mm -hmm. the um uh teen idols and um and then he talks about, and then they interview in between, and he talks about his role as like a custodian of the record of this music scene mm. and how, you know, and he, he's like, wouldn't it be great if somebody just like stuck to that, stuck to their guns and like didn't ever like give up, you know? And I remember just, I would, it, it was like, again, like I, I don't want to put anything on him or like it wouldn't, but like, yeah, like that's the antidote to the the spiraling chaos and 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 uh, the just the corruption that just like can't stop 
like destroying everything that somebody would just see themselves as like, yeah, I'm a custodian of something important. And as long as I'm alive, like I'm going to do my best to take care of this important document of, of a period of time and a place and a music scene and these things. And it's, it's really inspiring more than anything, just to, it's like, um, it's not grand. It's as a custodian. I'm, when I think of a custodian, I think of like keeping a bathroom clean. That's really important to you in this space that people need to use over time. And not that I'm not likening like a music scene to a bathroom, but the, no, I understand. Yeah. But, 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 but maybe, I mean, it, yep. it, it's this important, it's this important thing that people, that people rely on and, and it's not glamorous. It's, it's, there's a, it's mundane and it's one foot in front of the other and it's planting a garden and tending the garden until you are dead, you know, mm-hmm. and it's a really inspiring model that he, uh, that he has been and kind of created. Uh, and, you know, nope, everybody's, I mean, I'm saying I'm not into gurus and I'm just like, I feel like I'm putting him on a pedestal, but it really is not. It's just like, um, it's like the path forward is just being a custodian of things that you care about. Yeah. And, um, and the glamor and the, the, that people think about or the, the notoriety or all that stuff is poison. And, you know, and the antidote to that poison is just like the routines and the rituals that you have around taking care of something you care about yeah like i th- I really do feel like watching him you know like you're saying make this transition from an active producer of the zeitgeist of culture to a custodian of culture like to watch discord move from one thing to becoming this sort of symbol of what some what a group of people could accomplish what a scene could accomplish it's yeah. amazing like you know to go to the discord house now it's almost like it's gone from being this sort of like punk house where people are staying, people are playing in the basement to this sort of like, I don't want to say museum because it, it, it diminishes what it is, but it's become mm-hmm. like, like, it, it's like you go there, like, you know, not to once again, drive this guru thing into the ground, but like <laughs> I, when I went Mecca. there, yeah, like I went there, I, I went and I, I wanted to like pay tribute, you know, I wanted to see what it looked like. I wanted to be on the stairs and, and, you do what all yeah. the stuff you do when you go to these places that, and it held so much significance. Like this is somewhere that I had idealized since I was 16 years old. And so here I am, yeah. you know, 20 some odd years later, like confronted with it. It's, it is, it's amazing to kind of, I don't know, to, to see these sort of things happen over time. And, and, and the question that comes up is like, what is the takeaway? Like, you know, I started in this conversation saying like, I'm not into gurus or whatever, but like, obviously this is a, this is a, this is an achievement or this is a, this is an important tradition that somebody has maintained. And how do you, like, when does that become something negative and it doesn't have to, and maybe this is a a very rare example that people in punk rock can see and um, take heart and inspiration from because it hasn't crossed over into you know like we could each go there and then we take away like i I feel like my takeaway from every interaction with that band and and you know there's fewer interviews with the rest of everybody but i've heard everything that is out there Mm -hmm. and 
it always, every single time pushes me back into the rehearsal space or back into like keeping my, like I said, <laughs> keeping my stuff clean or just like be, being, reducing things to, you know, getting, getting rid of like the, the, the bullshit or, um, and not, not some kind of hero worship, but just like, oh, the only way to get there, the only way to have done that is to be thoughtful and careful and to not, you know, to get your head out of your ass and to like, try, you know, like all, all of these things. And so I feel like that those are, maybe there are very few examples of that on earth in history that have not turned into some kind of movement where people get sucked in and get hurt you know, bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, hopefully there's more, there's, you know, there's more of that. And so, yeah, not, not a guru, but just like a really like a living, breathing for now example of just like how to plant a garden and keep it going, you know, in a way that benefits so many people, you know, yeah. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm getting emotional thinking about like just being so lucky to get in Brian's car and hear steady diet of nothing. Like I can remember the the light and the, through the car windows and like everything about, you know, the smell in this car, you know, this bad smell <laughs> in the car that on the way to band practice, you know, <laughs> and like all of it. And I just feel really lucky to have found or, you know, discovered that group when I did because it really it's helped me a lot and continues to you know and the message is again is to like not be like Fugazi or be like any band but just like find a way to be authentic and to be yourself and to to express you know what's in you know later it'd be like Georgia keeps saying like make your unknown known or something Mm -hmm. like this it would sort of encapsulate and to me that's what like if, yeah, well, I, we don't need to say what punk is necessarily, but yeah, it just, they, they were just such a good kind of like uh, example of a way to try to do it. And I know that it's not perfect inside the, the little world of, of that too, that there's conflict and things or I've heard or whatever, but I just really see people trying to stick to their convictions about things. It must be like a, you know, like everyone in a, in a musician, as soon as you become like a, an artist or a musician, there's like a following, there's a burden that you kind of carry, but like, what a burden to be in that group where they, they're probably like looking in front of them right now. There's millions of dollars on the table. Like if they took a, right. an offer from Coachella, they'd right. all get millions of dollars. <laughs> Wouldn't that yet, be nuts? Oh my God. It would be terrible. It was like a nightmare yeah. scenario, but yeah. you know, I, I don't know if I'd be strong enough, like to, to see yourself as bigger or to see what you're doing is bigger than who you are as a person and your personal needs. It's, it's a, I, I, it would be very hard. Like I could only, I can't imagine with a family to kind of be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose that would be kind of maybe grind your gears sometimes when you're feeling desperate or, or, you know, um, yeah. And, and I guess it's kind of how, how would those of us who, have taken heart from that example even process you know that and i guess i wouldn't mm-hmm. begrudge them that and you'd hope that you'd imagine they'd turn around and do something good with that with that money you yeah. know yeah but um yeah 
yeah, just to drive old cars and to, to, you know, to just keep it simple. And I think that that's, it's, it's kind of, it, it reminds me of like, I, I figured this out when I was playing drums as a kid that like, you can be a chop monster and you can like, you know, pup your chest out and like do the thing and like strut. But like the moments where you touch that transcendent kind of soul moment, that's not, you can't uh, aggress, you can't be aggressive, to, like, um, it's a, it's a point of balance of like humility and, um, it's like, it's like any transcendent kind of thing. Like it's not, you can't just sort of like muscle your way into it. You can't, you, you can't even like practice your way. I'm not sure if that's right, but it just reminds me of it, like in, in playing music with yourself or with other people, there's that moment that you can kind of find your way into that is like, okay, I'm grateful to be here being a conduit or, for this energy or uh, um, and I feel like that that is like over the long haul what I see with with them is like people who have yeah who have done that over time in a way that um, yeah to, to to be a conduit for this energy that I'm still receiving as a as a person and um, that's yeah that's it that's um instructive i guess um, that was a little convoluted there but. no but like you know and i and I, people that listen to the show i'm not even the biggest fugazi fan so but i yeah. find i find getting to talk about this stuff like it's it's now that i'm thinking about like you know we've been talking about how important they are on an idealistic sort of conceptual level but even like you're talking about on the musical level you know you can't argue that nirvana changed mainstream music forever yeah. but fugazi changed underground music and, and all music afterwards forever you know like it, there's yeah. nothing's the same like fugazi wasn't following in the rock tradition that nirvana was following in yeah and i and, and i mean arguably i don't know that kurt like listened to fugazi or not i don't know yeah. anything about that but i that kind of songwriting it, it it really just stays so unique and it's hard for people to get into it now in a way because like i had a a friend who's in her mid twenties be like, okay, I show me Fugazi. And I was like, Oh my God, like, how do I even, yeah. what do I even do? And in the, after all, like I started with red medicine. Cause that was like my favorite at the time, or I thought like a pretty sophisticated version of the band. And then I wound up just playing in on the kill taker all the way through. And that, that winds up being like a really great introduction to the energy of that band. But it's such a, like, there, there is melody, obviously. There is song structures that make sense to like pop music, but, and it's, it's also like hardcore punk influenced in a way, but it's also none of those things. Like it, it's, it's just something totally different. And, and I, I think of Radiohead as a band who's sort of like kind of analogous to them in terms of how they kept evolving. But Fugazi did it with the same instruments. They didn't get synthesizers mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to continue evolving. They just like figured out. I mean, obviously they started using effects. I was just gonna say, like Radiohead's also existing, kind of like you know they they predated a little, but they're they're post Fugazi. Like I guarantee, yes. you know, because like uh, 
you know, a bunch of those dudes played in the Headless Chickens, like punk bands in England. So they definitely yeah. were aware of Fugazi and probably influenced. Like, it's amazing how many people were influenced by Fugazi by hating it and rejecting it yeah, and trying to do something yeah. completely <laughs> the opposite of it, right? Like, it's affecting change yeah. every way, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, that was my that was my entry point into what felt like real punk music. Because there's, like, stylistically punk music. There's obviously, like, things called punk, like pop punk and things like this that don't really reflect this what I came to feel like was the spirit of the punk music that spoke to me but um but yeah that was my my entrance into to to that idea and continued to kind of challenge me the way that I think the idea of punk should should I don't want to say should but oh, yeah, at, its, <laughs> at its best the, the idea of punk it continues to challenge one to not be complacent or to, to continue to, to kind of push and invent things and to, you know, to hear and to see and to express, you know, things in a not non-static kind of way. And, you know, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, part of that growth for me has been, you know, opening my ears to stuff that I had not, I didn't pay attention to uh growing up and like one of that thing things that i've kind of come to and i wanted to ask you about was the lifesavers and michael knott uh oh yeah because that stuff's amazing like that u.s kids album is unreal and and i don't know too much about that label swing records like if it was an independent Mm -hmm. label or something but like i think to try and be a christian punk band back when they were doing it like 81 82 yeah you were probably getting love from any side at that point well, and it's weird because I didn't come around. I didn't hear Mike Knott's music until after, like somehow the Christian bookstores that I was mining, like I didn't run into Lifesavers Union or Mike Knott or I didn't know about like Aunt Betty's Ford or, I mean, and Mike is still, is still um, like I saw him, I guess it's probably 20 years ago now, but he, yeah, he just has so much energy for mm. for this for make for ma- making and trying to keep pushing and um, you know and and sensitive people get fucked up you know yeah. o- over time and 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 are prone to to and and I guess that's what I see is like somebody as creative as Mike it's a sensitivity that it's volatile, you know, and mm-hmm. it's difficult to sort of like maintain, but every time he got the chance, he tried to make something and, uh, and I'm sure, and still does. Is Mike still with us? Is there, is it I think he is. I, I looked it up after the tooth and nail documentary came up and I think I'm pretty sure he's still, I have, he hasn't yeah. put out records in a long time though. But I, I, every time I run into him, it, either a recorded version of something that I hadn't heard or like running into him live, it's like sit down and or stand there and like take it in. Like this is a genuine article of of a, of a creative soul who is tuned in to himself or, is, you know, is is being present as mm. as fuck or whatever they say with with what is happening you know and and rock and roll and music or whatever it's called offers and art you know but music is different i mean it's it's there's a there's a physical emotional spiritual presence 
in, in a moment, um, in a like ephemeral kind of moment that happens with music that's different than any other art form kind of. I mean, dance is music. Um, it, it, and, but yeah, he, but that is, that that's been his practice. Like I, yeah, I was born, I, I got this record because he put out a record on Tooth and Nail. I got a box of CDs from Tooth and Nail and they were trying to get me on the label in the 90s and that this record Rock Stars on H um, okay. was in that box and I remember putting it on and just like, whoa, this is informed by something different. He's not, you know, growing up, like hearing all the ways that Christian music kind of apes everything else that was going on, he was somebody who was not, didn't seem to be doing that to my ears. Yeah, like he, that's the thing about that. Like, I, I had no idea till I bought it and listened to it and sat down a few times and was that US Kids was coming from like a, a, a non secular place. Like, I was like, oh, it's yeah. just like a punk record. It's like a really cool, obscure power pop <clears throat> record. Yeah. And then, you know, and it feels like, it, it, once again, I think it speaks to my lack of understanding of this world and the scene because it was like once I found out about who this guy was, people are like, "Oh, he's he's incredible. He's huge. He's got this huge catalog of stuff." And yeah, it it really like listening to his stuff. I realized like, "Oh, it's not." I think I had a misconception of it that I it was like I always looked at it as being a recruitment tool, and I never saw it as someone in it who was experiencing it and looking at this as being, you know, there like art and an escape from the dogma of some of the other stuff happening around them. Like, you know, and that's when I kind of began to look at it that way a little bit more. Well, and I think that you're right to think of it that way because it, often it was a recruitment tool or an alternative for Christian kids to have something uh, like secular music offered, mm -hmm. but that was sort of sanitized enough for it to be safe. And that's why a, a fellow like Mike, I think, struggled to navigate through that world because he was never going to do that. He was never going to, nothing was going to be sanitized, yeah. you know? And, and I don't think that it was that common a thing in that time. And then that culture, and somehow he was so good at it that he was able to kind of keep on doing it and he would get major label attention. And then he would get like, there was just always somebody willing to like put out his records or to, to you know, because he was genuine and and doing that stuff, but I think it, it, if I'm understanding it right, that that was part of the struggle is that he also most people putting out Christian records had to answer to somebody who was conservative, yeah. either the Christian bookstores where the records were being sold would like I got shit from Christian bookstore owners who didn't realize that I wasn't sanitizing anything and that I wasn't like. You know, for me, though, my first EP that I made that was on Tooth and Nail, that was like my version of telling the Christian story, like on a record. And then after that, I just, I, moving forward, I thought, that's not right. Like, that's not a right way to, to go about this. And I felt like wrong about it. And so from there, I just was like, okay, I, these are things that are central to me that I'm going to write about, but I'm going to write about them from the perspective of me, which is a doubting person. And like, but that wasn't, but there's a lot of points along the way where you're going to get enough pushback where you're going to be out of business. If you try to stay within that world, because that world will celebrate a voice that's kind of like 
a little bit edgy or a little bit unsanitized for a minute, but they need to be able to control what comes out of of the the speakers or their their business or their label or their book, Christian bookstore. Like I remember, I went to go get a scattered few record at Berean Bookstore in Phoenix, um, and the guy was like, "We don't carry that band," and I was like, "Oh, okay. Why you you know about them? You decided not to carry them?" And he's like, "They play in bars." And I was like, got it. <laughs> um, and like, you just experienced, so like an unsanitized voice like Mike's is just going to struggle to find stability within any kind of ecosystem like that. Not Christian enough for Christians, too Christian for, or too, not, uh, too Christian for secular, quote unquote. Um, and I experienced that to some degree, but uh, I was able to find more stability because of the stability of like the independent rock record label ecosystem that was more established by then with obviously discord and merge and, mm -hmm. and, and all of the descendants of, of I mean, like it was SST, like an, an independent label. Yep. yep. Black flags like, one and stuff. Yeah. So there, there were examples of that thing, but by the time I got into it, like there, it was an established system and circuit and so there was a place for my odd kind of in-betweener um, expressions. But yeah, it's, you're right that it's difficult to, to continue to make things that aren't proselytizing or trying to influence people or, or to even just be a sanitized facsimile or of, of something that existed outside of that world. If you continue to try to make real art, um, I'm unhappy with that phrase, but if you, <laughs> if, if you can try to be yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that when I signed the, to Jade tree, like Tim Kinsella was kind of bummed. He was just like, what's this Christian bullshit. And then like a after a couple of records, he was like, Oh, you do what you want. And I was yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes, <laughs> that's right. I do what I want. And he was like, oh, okay, no problem then. You know? And I felt, uh, I mean, I was, that made sense to me that he would be like, skeptical because it what it, it almost always is that other thing mm. um mm. and so yeah well it's, it's almost like there's two things right like there's like what you're doing or what michael knott's doing where it's like it's someone talking about their relationship to like you're saying you're, you're talking about your relationship to this thing at that time mm -hmm. i mean um and and then there's this other thing which is like just reinforcing the values of this thing yeah. that that it's a part of which it's like it certainly and, yeah and, and it, it's not yeah you're right because we were talking about religious traditions almost that sometimes straight edge hardcore can be a part of that mm -hmm. and and if you have but to, yes and to to sort of poke and prod and to to examine aspects of the tradition in a critical light or in a doubting light or anything like that can create issues within um but but most people within those especially like the, the if somehow you're allowed to be in touch with your feelings enough to to feel that like tension i mean something speaks to that tension and creates uh, a friend of mine this guy called david dark he says he talked he has this phrase expanding the space of the talk about like when 
you know, you say, I don't know about this, you know, like uh, this tenant of straight edge or this tenant of, you know, this rubs me the wrong way. And sometimes you'll be in certain situations where they try to shut that down. Mm. But there's a lot of people who are just like, yeah, m- you know, me too. And this, this m- uh, expression of somebody's doubt or whatever. I feel that too. And I, and I, I haven't felt safe to talk about it, but now this record exists and, or whatever. And um, that's like for it to keep moving and to keep. uh, That's what I'm drawn to. And and that's what kind of saved me from. My own. um, Isolation and insecurity in the thoughts and feelings that I was having is hearing other people sort of say how they were feeling in song. And be like, okay, cool. Like, I, I can think about that. Or it's, I don't feel so much shame mm-hmm. about how I am because you know, there, this is being expressed. And to me, that just like de-shaming process is kind of what one of the things that music and art can really be uh, helpful for. What was the first live concert you saw, or live music you saw? <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> uh, the first concert that I went to was this Christian singer called Sandy Patty. Okay. I don't, I've never heard um, of Sandy Patty. Well, if you or anybody listening Googles her, um, yeah, I, li- I li- my mom and dad listened to Sandy Patty a lot. She was like a more grown up, like Amy Grant kind of person. Okay. okay yeah. Um, like a little bit more choir. I'm not meaning to diss at all because there's certain songs and records that I still kind of touch me. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a concert with my parents and then, and it was at this mega church in Phoenix called Phoenix first assembly. And then the next concert I went to, I was probably in sixth grade or something. And then the next concert I went to was the concert that I wanted to see, which was this Christian singer called Carmen, who mm. is, um, I, I don't even know what to say about Carmen, but um, I was very, very into Carmen from like seven to maybe 11. Um, and so that I went to that concert at the same mega church. Um, and then I think the first thing that I went to that had any kind of like rock and roll energy was this Christian thrash metal band called Deliverance. And it was the first time I experienced a mosh pit and it was in like uh, Marysville, California, like in the Central Valley, uh, south of Modesto. Oh, no, south of Chico. I lived in a few places in the Central Valley there. But um, and that was the first time that like I was in a mosh pit. And it was me and these like I was in ninth grade, like skinny kid. And like it was me and these like six biker dudes. It was not <laughs> it, it, it was not like a it was really like very few of us. And so it didn't have the dynamics of a, of a mosh pit. It was just basically me and six biker dudes just kind of like, or them just sort of body slamming me into the front row of the seats over and over again. And I was just like, Whoa, this is kind of fucked, you know? And, but it it had that energy of like, that I came to see it at shows later. Yeah. Um, But I think the first, like, I saw Fugazi at on the Red Medicine tour at this 
all ages place in Seattle called Deviate. And um, I went to a bunch of other local shows. Like when I was in high school, there was a church in the area uh, that had shows there, concerts. Um, and like, you know, Jeremy Enoch played there, not Sunny Day, but like Enoch solo. And like, um, I was going to ask you, did you ever see, do you ever see Reason for Hate, his hardcore band before that with William Goldsmith? I never saw Reason for Hate. No. Okay. They seem um, like they must have been around for a hot second. No one I know from Seattle <laughs> like ever saw this band play, but they have that one recording out. I only saw, I, and I never even saw Sunny Day. Honestly, I saw uh, Jeremy solo a bunch. Um, but shows were weird back then in Seattle because um, there were some all ages places, but it, it was really uncommon because the, of like the, the the teen dance ordinance is what it was. The the law was that enforced like no all ages or like it was very difficult to ha to put on all ages shows for a while, um, and then so once I turned twenty one, then you know I then I was just going to shows all the time. Um, but for me, it was like this church space that is where Pedro played its first shows. Like the first three years of Pedro playing shows, it was all churches, youth groups. And, you know, uh, and then finally we got to play like there was this venue in town called the Velvet Elvis that was one of the, the rare kind of like con consistent all ages um, uh, places to play. And so I saw shows there and. Um, back in that time, there's a band called Roadside Monument from from around here that put yeah. out a few records on Tooth and Nail. And for my money, then and now, like they were a band that I saw consistently that just kind of took your breath away. Like you just stand there, and they it was just sort of like gravity defying shit that they were doing. And the song structures were really fucking cool and heavy and weird, but like they were just so creative and, and how they put the songs and parts and things together. And it was always so, it kept moving. It was so surprising. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I came, came through a lot of music that wouldn't stick with me first, you know, like I, I, because of the not being allowed to, to listen to the music that I came to later, it was like, I had to go through a lot of like I saw DC Talk open for this band called Res Band, which was like this, they're like this Christian, like I don't even know what you'd say. They were like a roots, they were kind of heavy. It wasn't metal, but yeah, like I just saw a bunch of things that were kind of eye opening and, and interesting, but I, that I didn't didn't like grab me, you know, until later. Did you like that band? I, I keep looking over because I got the LP here, but uh, do you like that band One Bad Pig? Yes. That's one of the bands that I that I had the, the 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 record with Bowl of Wrath on it. Yeah, I've got this little one I have is Smash and the intro on this on Goddard Key is one of the hardest intros. Like it is... It sh can you show me the cover? Yeah, it's this one. Yeah. Oh, and that's so funny because it's such a ripoff of that In Excess cover. Yeah, I um, always thought it looked like kind of like an ugly kid Joe vibe. Yeah, kind of the, thing too. Like so, the skateboarding with the guitar on. If they could, it, if they is, can do that on stage, I would I would go to see that band for days. Is that is the song Bowl of Wrath on that record? Can you? Yeah, I'm just. Uh, no, not on this one. So I got to get the one with Bowl of Wrath on it. 
so that the one that I had was Bol, was Bola Brands, and that's the record, the band that I was talking about. That was like I think the the couple of them were like youth pastors or something. Um, and but I really listened to that record, not the one that you just held up, but mm-hmm. another one, Bad Pig record, a lot. Um, and then once I found the Crucified, I was kind of like, well, like maybe this is I don't know. I, I kind of I put that away at some point. I'm not. I don't remember exactly why. What what drew you to the, like the more aggressive sounds of bands like that and Crucified? Like like you know, a lot of kids it's because they got into skateboarding or they were into horror movies, and so that was the natural extension to get more aggressive stuff. But because you're not necessarily surrounded by that stuff, were you just like fascinated by the aggression to it, the energy, or what was it? It was something about the energy. It felt more authentic, like that, than the other things that I had available at the Christian bookstore, and you know, listening to the Beatles. I think I had, you know, there are little, little glimpses of like Helter Skelter has that kind of yeah, unhinged definitely kind of energy. And, it, and, you know, you turn that up loud and it's like, oh man, it just does something to you, you know? And so, yeah, I still, and, and that's what, I mean, I still go back to Fugazi. Like there are some Fugazi songs, particularly this, one of these Joe Lally songs called by you mm. off of red medicine and, and the, the, the feedback and the discordance and the noise of the guitars and the context of this like kind of like pulsing um, groove for lack of a better word. Uh, it, it just, yeah, it tickles something and loud guitars, you know, loud electronics is good, but there's something about guitars that are just sort of like, yeah, they're wild. It's yeah. there's just like a wildness to the sound that guitars can make, um, and yeah, it spoke to me. And I remember my dad really trying to 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 listen to the music. Uh, uh, this band, um, Tourniquet, was this kind of like real kind of proggy, kind of technical thrash metal band, and then vengeance rising was this la based kind of thrash metal band that i liked um and you know and i and then like metallica like injustice for all was out at that point but that was that it kind of would touch that but like the earlier ones like whenever i would heard heard puppets or something like this there was just like an energy to certain heavy music that and like jehu really touches that there's like a mania and like like a it's just an intensity. And I think as a drummer at the time, I didn't play guitar and I liked heavy music. And so I was in that band with Gerardo and, 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 and a, a kind of a short list of other folks. And yeah, that's a good question. I don't know why. Another one, another thing I've kind of always kind of wondered about is like, why Seattle? Like, it's almost like this is the other Seattle. Like the fact that you have this sort of Christian music explosion, obviously tooth and nail being there, is yeah. part of it but like you know like there's such like a because none of you, none of the bands that that are kind of put under this umbrella sound the same at all like everyone's no. doing it completely differently and there's so many artists that are just breakout arts like that end up not being part of christian music we're just part of the larger music scene but it's all seeming playing this venue like i remember mike from mxpx talking about the venue that you're talking about velvet elvis velvet elvis yeah yeah 
Um, I'm not even velvet outside the youth group to the place where you saw Jeremy Enoch. The, the, the oh, well, so I, I met Mike back then. Like they, 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 we played with the band that I was in with Gerardo. We played with magnified plaid, which is what they were called before MXPX. And like, and then they, they, they were just like kids from across the water who were doing this pretty well tuned, like uh, pop punk thing. And, and it was before Dookie came out. So it was like before pop punk, like went, totally like Nuclear. mainstream <laughs> yeah um and so and then they were they were doing that right as that happened and so then they just kind of like took off and we stopped seeing them in the same way but they were just kind of like kids you know doing this really well honed thing mm -hmm. um but yeah that was so that was called rock house h-o-u-s okay yeah uh, that's what R I said. R -O -R -O -K. H-O-U-S, I think, something like that. And it was this church called Calvary Fellowship, which still has, is still functioning up north. But it was this really interesting moment because the church met in this old uh, high school in the heart of um, the Seattle neighborhood called Wallingford, which was like in the middle of the city. And so it had like a city energy to it. Mm. And the buildings that that they occupied in the very, on the campus were like kind of old and vibey and so the place where you, the shows were happening was a dope space i mean it just was really it felt cool yeah it didn't feel like some repurposed you know, like youth group room it just felt like like you had these tall ass windows and there's this brick building and the shows felt and th there was bands at that time christian bands would go on tour and so it was a scene it had some like vibrancy like a scene and there were not hardly any bands that really straddled the line between Christian and secular that much, but a little bit with like Enoch would play and I'm trying to think of other bands that might've come through that were sort of like on the line, but it, it felt like a scene that later kind of moved into this venue that was a Seattle venue for a while called the paradox, which was run by the Mars Hill church, which is kind of famous for being there's like a podcast about it now. It's like a really fucked up place, but they had this venue that was an extension of a, a place for that scene to kind of move to. And, and what I thought was remarkable about that place was that they had all kinds of bands play. I think they had like a quota that had to be like one Christian band on every show. I could be wrong about that, but that was okay. my impression. Yeah. But they had, you know, I, I saw all kinds of bands there. Um, and so there was like a scene that all kind of like dumped out into the same there was like this christian scene and then there was obviously like the the non-christian scene that was happening and, and at a certain point it all became this one big thing you know like i met you know gibbard and uh, armor and these guys from death cab and we started playing shows together and became fast friends and so it just all the, the the divisions and the the lines between a lot of what was happening just went away and then there was just a rich tradition somehow of like smart, creative songwriting and, you know, from Nirvana and, I, I, you know, and, and Pearl Jam that they weren't my favorite at the, at the time. Um, but like, and then Sunny Day was like, I mean, the pink record for me, I was in college and like, I, yeah, just for me, there were just things that I would run into in person that 
it, it expanded my imagination. But I yeah. just was, I would, I would hear Jeremy sing and I think, how do you even think of that melody? Like that melody is so nuts. Like, where does that come from? And then I'm sitting there with my guitar and I'm stabbing out in ways that I wouldn't have done before because he was hitting these heights of, of emotion and creativity that I was like, what the hell? And so then it caused me not to try to ape him, but to try to just find in my own voice, like, how do I find things that are, that feel exotic to me in, 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 in a way that expresses that thing that's hard to get to in there, you know? Yeah. And so there, it was just around. For me, the melancholy is a big thing. My music is very, very melancholy. And Seattle is a good place for that. You know, the, the weather, as they say, you know, but it, it, it never bummed me out. It always kind of spoke to me and it was a place for me. You know, my music is grief music always. And, uh, and so I got enough of cross-pollination with other people who weren't doing that exactly you know, and then built to spill would come out, and and again, just thinking like, how did, how's this? How are you thinking of these things? You know, yeah. um. So yeah, there's just a, there's a tradition of people who are just being creative and using their imagination. It's amazing when you though, like even just broadly speaking, the music that comes out of Seattle. Like there's that high school where like Nikki Six went there, Sir Mix a Lot went there. Yeah. El Duce went there. Like it's just like all yeah. these people are in high school together. Like that, how is that well, possible? Like, one of the best jazz programs in the country, like high school jazz, like it was has been at Roosevelt High School for a long time. And I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. Um, I really don't. I mean, I've lived in a bunch of other places on along the in the West and along the West Coast, and um, you know, there are places like I lived in Modesto for a minute and granddaddy came out of there. Um, but like, there's just example after example in Seattle of, of that you can point to that's like, Oh yeah. And then this, you know, I don't know what it is. Well, like, um, it's almost like there's no cooling off period. Cause like we talked about that, there's that, you know, grunge Nirvana period, but then right afterwards, there's like, you're saying like, death cab and yourself and like there's this whole like sunny day there's this whole wave of other bands just kind of like immediately in the wake and it's it's funny because like you're saying there's also all these preconditions that are making it hard to have an all like a young punk scene like there's a dance ordinance there and it's just like mm -hmm. it's interesting how that plays into this whole thing yeah the the um the scarcity or the the challenge of it or the you know like when you're when your dad was like this isn't a good idea and you were like oh it's a better idea you know like you just yes. like you push against the resistance of of whatever it is um that must have played a part um music is just so infectious too and for me what brings me back to it always is i'll just hear like i've never gotten bored with it for very long or discouraged with music for very long I would, I've gotten that way repeatedly, but all it takes is hearing some tune, you know, mm -hmm. Julie Doran record comes on. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, how is she doing that? You know? And then I go, I want to play my guitar, you know, and like learn that tune and then, you know, whatever, like, yeah, it just, all it takes is to hear a song and then to, and then just pulled right back into what it can do to your body and your brain. And then makes me want to create and, you know, connect.
So when when you talked about that moment where the walls kind of break down between the two sort of secular and non secular scenes, was that like like late nineties or mid nineties or when was yeah, that? Yeah, it would have been like late nineties, early two thousands. Okay. Um, I I just am trying to place like I put out my first full length in ninety eight and was allowed to like finally was was allowed to play rock and roll clubs like uh you know quote unquote secular you know bars venues yeah. would start to book me at that point and uh, you know a big part of you can't under underestimate the effect of kcmu slash kxp yeah like because that's that you know john and uh, uh richards and cheryl waters were at kcmu when i put out uh the first pedro the lion falling director in 98 and they played my record yeah and that's why um dan cowan at the tractor tavern booked my band for the first time and then the crocodile cafe uh, let me have a show after that and it really was uh college radio that you know ha- to whatever role i played in small role i played in the in the the dams kind of coming the divisions kind of coming out i could i couldn't have that was i didn't do that i made my record and then the people at the radio station were like this is a cool record and you know my james morales who put out the record um you know i could i didn't have access to any of this stuff without these other people um uh, you know hearing it and being like okay cool like let's put this let's put this up you know and so yeah I, for me i noticed it in like 2002 three four five it was really like wow these are all people like i'd go to shows and i would feel like it reminded me of what church used to feel like because outside everybody's smoking and um and it was all these people that i knew from church like half of them and then the other half were people that i had met through playing and rock clubs and through other bands and like this band mars accelerator who was on rx remedy records um we went on tour with them and and i i love their band and i would go see them whenever i could and yeah it just it was just this marbled thing and i noticed it at a certain point like wow this is all like you know and it's what i wanted when i was starting out like i wanted kids to have to go to tower to get my records and i wanted kids to have to go to like not their church to see my band yeah um and have to kind of break come out of the cloister that um so that was a goal of mine but it just happened in mass in this town in a way that i'm kind of curious if there'd be a way to document that I think I think that would be a fascinating documentary because I saw that tooth and nail documentary and there's one the whole thing I want to find out is like like I want to find out more about how it existed in Seattle and like and yeah. just sort of the precursors and like how it fits in the ecosystem. I think it's such a fascinating thing to talk about. And like you said KEXP I think I I can't believe I overlooked that but that that place is involved in like to have a radio station with that kind of reach locally that's willing to play local bands like not yeah. every place has that yeah it's true and and like they there's a rich tradition there that goes back to when they were housed on the university of washington campus and like you know that's where i went into the the first time where we'd go in and play little um in studios or, or whatever and and then there was this influx of money that allowed them to kind of expand and to to their reach to grow and and you know there's a few places in the country 
that are all loosely connected with either like public radio or the university system at their roots that are real DJs playing records that they want. You know, there's heavy rotation and these artists that are putting out records that they're, you know, but they're DJs playing music that they want. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that is something that is remarkable um, nowadays, you know, and, and so, yeah, the, the tradition of college radio, I think really not just in Seattle, but, you know, but touring, like we couldn't have toured, like we went to Minneapolis in 1998 on it's hard to find a friend tour. And there was, you know, like 150 heads at the show. We sold 28 CDs that first night of tour. And we are like, it's going to be okay. You know, like we're not fucked. And, and it was because radio K, which became the current later, um, played our record. And so people knew songs from the record and they promoted the show. And um, it was like a local Minneapolis radio station that now has like, is a KEXP for many people. Like some people listen to KEXP, some people listen to The Current. Um, and yeah, that, that the support of that ecosystem um, and then having places to play all over the country because that had, you know, that circuit existed. Um, yeah, there's no way to have done it without all, without all that. On the first tours, like the first time you start playing out, because you do have your feet in both worlds, like were you trying to mainly do the rock and roll club circuit and avoid the other circuit at first? Well, so uh, the first touring that I did out of the region here was in 1998, and I booked a West Coast show a tour myself with the Span Mars Accelerator, mm-hmm. and. It was me and Jonathan Ford, who was in Roadside Monument and later has this has continued to have this band called Unwed Sailor. And he was playing bass and my friend Paul Muma was playing drums. And we were in a Datsun 510 with the back seats, fold, half of it folded down. So it was like an L shape of humans and then an L shape of gear and bags and some seven inches that we had. And so we went up and down the West Coast, played only like either like weird all ages spaces or bars. And that was completely secular as it were. Um, And then my friend at the time, he's still my friend, but we were just pals, just kind of barely knew each other. Trey Manny, he's been my booking agent since 1998. Uh, But like in the fall of 98, he became my booking agent, but he was, I had had house shows at my house of touring bands coming through um, that I would put on. And I put on one for Trey and Pedro opened. He had a band called Velour 100. And at the end of the show, I was like, Hey man, like I'm ready to go. Like I, if, if you want me to open for you, like you and Jeremy, the drummer of his band could be my rhythm section and I could play bass in your band. And like, if you have a spot in your band and ever want to do that, like, you know, give me a ring. And like a month later, he was like, Hey, I got, I'm on this tour and it was a Christian tour completely. It was joy electric was the headliner and then Trey's band and my band. And then this other band, this kind of like rap group. Um, and it was all churches except for the days off. Trey booked us in Valour uh, and Pedro in some uh, non church related, non Christian venues, like in LA. And we played this I'm trying to think what the, cafe blue which was like sort of a a revolving 
night at different venues. Um, and we got screwed over at all the Christian shows, like all the Christian shows, the money wasn't right. Like, I don't want to say a hundred percent, but maybe, I mean, it was like 95% of the shows. This guy, Jeff cloud, he was tour managing the thing and he was in joy electric and he would kind of like slump out to the van. We'd be in the parking lot waiting for him to settle so that he could come and give us our money. And he'd walk up to the van and he'd be like, you guys, like, I'm so sorry. Like they, you know, we got 75 bucks for the show or whatever. Like I, I can't even give you anything tonight. And we understood that it wasn't him. He was getting hosed by these promoters who were like super green and like yeah. kind of squirrely. And, and so when Trey in August of 98, Trey was like, Hey, for whatever reason, he had to quit touring. And he was like, oh, so I'm going to start booking bands would you want me to be a booking agent? I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Cause booking that West coast tour was so difficult and I'm really bad at organizational stuff. And, um, and I was like, fuck yes, please. And so my only stipulation was no churches. Like I don't want to play churches. I only want to play um, bars and, and all ages places and stuff that aren't affiliated with churches. Cause there was just this move at the end where they would come up and put their arm around you and be like, brother, your ministry is so important, brother. You know, and that's when you knew you weren't getting paid what you're guaranteed, you know? Yeah. And it was like to a, to a place, like it, it, it was so frustrating as like a Christian person. Yeah. But so on that first tour, we did six weeks. Uh, I think my, my AirPods are about to die, but I'm going to switch them out. Um, so we played exactly two churches on that tour. Um, and they were fine. We played one in Orlando called The Porch, and there was a shit ton of kids there. And it was right up the road from this place called the Sapphire Supper Club, later The Social, that became the place that we played over and over again in Orlando. But, um, yeah, we played two two churches, one in Virginia Beach, and that one was fine because Trey knew the promote the person who was putting the show on, and they the money was straight. And then at the Orlando show, the money was straight. We got paid a lot of money because there was so many kids there. And, um, but other than that, it was all rock clubs or all ages spaces. And that's how it stayed after that. Cause it, it was just such a bad experience to play quote unquote Christian shows. Um, and again, there are exceptions to that rule. I, I don't want to paint everybody with that brush. Um, but it, it, it wasn't a good a scene to, to try to, survive in and so we asked him to get us out of it and he did to his credit he was like good you know i don't want to book shows there either (laughs) (laughs) going back to that first day when you when you play in the first band was that the guilty yeah the guilty did the guilty ever record or anything is it was it different than coolidge would be um so it evolved into what coolidge became okay i mean coolidge became it was so gerardo and i were the constants in the guilty and then uh there was some personnel shifts and then there was this band the band named linus we adopted and when we were linus it was me and this guy called eben haas e-b-e-n-h-a-a-s who was in blenderhead and some other bands okay yeah. yeah really brilliant creative guitar player musician and um so the linus became the three piece that Gerardo, me and Eben. And then we've realized there was at least two other bands called Linus at that point in time. And so then we changed our name to Coolidge and Gerardo, not too long ago, I'm trying to think where I put it. 
he sent me like the collected works of Coolidge. I know which, it's impossible to get. There's only like like 500 of them. There's like a hundred with a stamp. I was just talking about it with my brother today. It's like the, I got one of the stamp ones because I guess because I was in the band or whatever. Yeah, if they didn't give you a stamp one. There's something really wrong. <laughs> but it's I mean, listening back, like I was the drummer in that band. I those two harmonically, structurally, creatively made some cool shit. And I was really grateful to be in that group and to be influenced. And And I suppose I had influence. Like I wrote drum parts and we worked out song structures together and how many times we're going to do this and that. So it wasn't like I, it, I wasn't responsible for it. But hearing back what we did and what they did, I was moved. You know, it's a cool band. It's a cool band. Gerardo's, I learned a lot from watching him. Um, he's a very intuitive creative mind you know truly so would coolidge like what kind of bands were you guys playing with were you playing like did you tour out at all or, or you're super young obviously but we played regionally like so it's like a lot of shows at the rock house um some other places we played down in olympia at the capitol theater backstage with behead the prophet no lord shall live and like we would get odd little shows like this that for me were like incredible we played uh we played with earth crisis <laughs> really earlier we we played some we got into some like like we played like house shows in somebody's apartment um and it was a real education because i i had this horrible ride symbol that both those guys hated and then the drummer of one of these bands pulled me aside and he was like you you think of cool shit but like you got to quit going to the ride on the course every single time. Like that thing sounds terrible. And I was like, Oh, thanks, man. Like, I didn't know. Like I just yeah. was kind of like, that was a convention that I understood. And from that conversation alone, I was like, Oh, you should just do whatever. Like you don't have to play hi-hats in the verse and ride in the course. Like during, in that band, I got this huge uh, education about creative music making and, and tropes and conventions of, of music and how to, to, to kind of use them sometimes, but then have not to. Um, so we were, we played a bunch of odd shows, but honestly, Tuesday night or Thursday night or whatever it was, our weekly rehearsal was to me like the, the very few shows rose to the, the feeling of, of rehearsal night. Like I lived for, for band practice. Like it just felt so good to play those tunes and to, and it was in a controlled environment where we knew how our shit sounded. Every time we got out to a venue, it was just like, my drums don't sound right. Like, I can't hear the guitar. Eben would always step on his cord and pull the, the guitar cord out of his guitar like four or five times during the set. It was just like chaos. But the band practice like really touched me, you know, like I I just loved it. And hearing back that that Coolidge collected works. I hope that, that there's more that, that show up. It's, I mean, whatever, it's, it's a cool it was a cool band well it's an cool important band. band too like when you break down the three of you all doing stuff afterwards like it is one of those things that it's like you know like i it's 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 kind of like one of those things where the parts are greater than anyone probably thought at the time you know like the fact that here's everyone going on to do other stuff yeah yeah i suppose so i hadn't thought of it that way um i it was to me just an education and i'm really grateful to you know, Gerardo and I haven't necessarily stayed close over the years, but like, uh, and it wasn't even like 
close friends at that at that point in time. Like I don't know what my deal was or his. I don't I don't know, but like just to be in proximity of that kind of creativity um, and comparing it with the kind of uptight approach that I started with um, and sort of grew out of slowly over time. Um, yeah, he just was an intuitive art maker and 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 it's that magic that I, I, when you see the magic in front of you from a singer or a band or whatever and it, it your brain just is trying to how do you make magic you know like i want to make magic you know yeah. and and gerardo did and does um you know what did the guilty sound like because it was like more of a hardcore band right well, that's at least it how was, it's been written up it was so the the big difference between the incarnations is that in the final incarnation gerardo played bass in the guilty Gerardo played guitar and this other guy, Brian played bass. And so I think that as a songwriting tool, like Gerardo playing bass, it's this really primitive instrument compared to the guitar. And so it was more riffs hmm. that, you know, like power chord riffs that Gerardo would be playing. Not, not totally, but it was more that way. And it, it was a little bit more kind of like, uh, conventional in a certain way a little bit more hardcore but dorado's approach in the way that he screamed and sang it was it was noteworthy or it was like um it was there was a hook to what he always did the melodically other things that kind of he would scream and shout and but it it was more melodic than some of the other kind of like hardcore it was already kind of like edging toward like post hardcore a little bit and partly because i didn't know what the fuck i was doing like i couldn't play boom bat, da, bat, boom bat, boom bat. like i i just wasn't that kind of drummer i couldn't play fast yeah and so we and i think that probably bummed them out a little bit because they but like i just i i just played different kinds of things and so then once eben got in the band gerardo started playing bass and that was when it really came into what it what it what it was always moving towards because he would come in having written a song on the bass and then Eben could like put icing on that cake in a way that made it really unique and harmonically kind of just bizarre and um and with when Gerardo was playing guitar he was playing rhythm guitar you know so he played rhythm guitar and bass mm -hmm. um, once he became the bass player and then and melodic, like these bass lines that he would write had these moving, like open strings against these moving notes that were always the weird notes, you know, that at the time I was like, how, how do you know which, all the weird notes to pick? Like, <laughs> and they sound so good, you know? And uh, and then Eben would would add the, the layers of, of expression over top of that. And that's where I feel like it was really at its peak and capitalized on what Gerardo was best at and, and, and everything. And, um, so yeah, before it was like the bass lines were like following the guitar lines and which is great. I mean, there's so much music I love that does that. But once it broke that mold and became Linus and Coolidge, it really, it really started to grow into something like really interesting. And who are some of the bands you booked at your house? You mentioned doing house shows. Um, I forget what they were called, but so it was a, it was a mix of tooth and nail bands. And um, so Ryan and Don Clark had a band like Ryan has a band called demon hunter or did now. And he made that, but they had a band from California that came in and played. Um, 
uh, Velour 100 came through, uh, Mars Accelerator, I think Roadside Monument played, um, some of the solo projects of various bands like Dougie from Roadside had like a solo uh, set that he played. Um, I'm trying to remember what the bit, what the name of that other band was. Um, this local band called Rose Blossom Punch that this guy Aaron Sprinkle, it was his band. And and you're talking about the crossover, like the 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 divisions between scenes kind of collapsing. Aaron was a part of that. He was the he was like a producer at the Tooth and Nail Studios for a long time, but also just as it was a brilliant producer, engineer, guitar player. And he would have been one of the people who kind of came out of that world and was a part of the bigger sort of like Seattle scene. Um, and so I, I probably only put on 10 or 12 shows. I think I lived at that place for a year. Um, yeah. It's interesting to think about like that point where you're talking about the walls coming down in Seattle because it really felt like that happened in Toronto too. Chokehold, who were oh, very, yeah. you know, very agnostic, militantly atheist at times in their in some of the lyrics. Uh, the lead singer did like a super group called Prayer for a Fallen Angel with the guys from Disciple who were a, a Christian band. And yeah, you know, and I think it's like, do you think it's from Tooth and Nail kind of becoming so popular? in just the general punk world like because it really became a phenomena right at a certain point it must be because then you got because for me like when when i got that box of cds from them in like 96 mm -hmm. when they had offered me a contract of pedro a contract for the first time and i mean truthfully we took it to a lawyer and the guy was like nah -uh. <laughs> like do not sign this like they're trying to take your publishing like they're trying to do all this stuff it's not a fair deal. And yeah. we were like, okay. And so we didn't. And then later we did a seven inch deal, which is just like in and out. Like, but I, it, but I talked Brandon into making it a 10 inch because I wanted something a little more substantial. I wanted a CD at the merch table that had like four, four or five tunes on it, you know? Yeah. And then we had the 10 inch vinyl, which is, you know, really sexy too. But, um, but the, in the box of CDs, it was like Danielson family and, like early days of tooth and nail in Seattle or like middle days, Danielson family and Frodis and mm -hmm. Frodis. Um, absolutely. That's another fuck band. Yeah. They crossed the line. Like Jason Hemmocker was on the show, but like it's dudes from battery. It's dudes from all these like DC hardcore bands too. So they were a band that I remember seeing it like, you know, place venues that were like very much like no religion, but like Frodis would be a band that would cross over to the, to that yes. world. That and, um and roadside and velour and this band called sal paradise and this band called joe christmas who put out a couple of great records and then uh zach who was front to joe christmas had this band called summer hymns later and he's an athens guy that is brilliant i mean it was and then that mike not record rock stars on h and you know whoever put the box together knew which records to send me <laughs> yeah. but it was like there was a dozen bands who were just like, I like, and Starflyer 59, who I was done with Christian music when I heard the Starflyer record. And I was like, well, maybe I like this Christian band. <laughs> and then I listened to the, the Silver record over and over again. And then Gold came out. And like, I, I've been a huge Starflyer fan ever since. And then me and Jason are friends. And we have put, we were, have been in a band called Low Tom mm -hmm. together. And, but it, it, it was, it wasn't even hardcore music so much. It was just like all this interesting, I don't know what you'd say, like indie alternative 
punk, whatever music. And that kind of dissipated pretty quick. And the bigger bands like under oath came along and like, and, and what, what had staying power for the label, I think was like the more hardcore uh, oriented uh, bands. But for me, the kind of music I was interested in, in and making at the time, the label represented like something I, I hadn't anticipated, which was like a completely legitimate set of bands um, that um, really spoke to me. And it was hard not to sign because I wanted to be in that. I wanted to belong to that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, you wanted yeah. part of the canon at that point. Well, just to be in a community of people who are like, like-minded because you just felt like such a, like, I just thought, am I going to escape this, this cloister? Is there a, is there a way for me to be legitimate in the wider world as somebody who's trying to like bring my music to the show or to the, on record or whatever. And so I do think that tooth and nail probably had a, a huge influence on that because it gave, like it gave Frodus, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say what, I think it was. I, I, so, so somehow I'm hesitant to give Tooth and Nail too much credit because there was aspects of the label that was re- really bothered me. And 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 it, it also perpetuated the cloister like in a certain way. Um, but at the same time, it really was a, a place where people could be themselves and express themselves and make weird ass records and they would put them out, you know? Um, when when Daryl Jennifer was on the podcast, he talked about uh, like the different philosophies between the bad brains and I guess Ian broadly termed, but like, you know, minor threat Fugazi type thing. Yeah. Um, and just how like it was very much like tending to the flock is is the discord approach, whereas whereas bad brains, they were like, we want to go out and get our message to as many people as possible. So in doing so, we signed to shitty labels. We lost control of a lot of stuff. We gave up a yeah. lot of stuff to try and get the message out there. And it feels like Tooth and Nail was like the first label to be like, well, let's just try and get it out there to as many people as possible and not just to this audience that's already there. You know, and I'm looking from the outside, so I don't know if that's the actual case. Well, so it's it's a very interesting I so I'm just talking out of my ass, but my experience with the label was that that Brandon, that the owner and the people that he that gravitated toward the label early on, they, you know, if you go to their record collections like it's all yes it's it's all stuff that you're just like whoa like you have all these red house painters and like he had really good what struck me at the time and still does i suppose is really good musical taste Mm -hmm. and he was this extremely driven type a entrepreneur and he took those two things and made himself very wealthy yeah very very wealthy and put out a lot of really interesting bands along the way and supported and and again like i don't know what the deals became i only i only evaluated two different two different deals and for me the you know i had made the whole ep with steve wold in in olympia who was sort of a part of the modest mouse kind of family for a little while and then moved to europe and he did this sort of c6 steve thing that is, if you google that like it's pretty fascinating it became huge c6 steve they they, they like bbc radio type playing thing yeah 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 so yeah. that guy that was the guy who made the holy p i went to his studio what? 
That's crazy. Yeah. Cause when we were yeah. like, when I, when I was in, you know, when, when my band got a little bit of love in, in England, it was the same time as C6 Steve was getting a little bit of love in England. So I had, but I had no way of connecting the two worlds. So yeah, he had been an Olympia guy, had a studio oh, down wild. there. He had yeah. sort of been sort of a, a, a kind of a, a supporter, a booster, a, a, a sometimes like slide player in Modest Mouse. Okay. Yeah. And like was sort of, I hate, I, I don't want to say parented that group, but they were kids and like pretty chaotic bunch. And I think he added some stability to it. He ended up moving to Europe or wherever. And, and I, I, I didn't know what happened to him. And then I was touring in Europe yeah. at some point I saw him on the TV and I was like, that's Steve. And, <laughs> and so Steve really helped me because he was like, I, the second time I got a contract from tooth and nail, it was, it, it, I asked the publishing wasn't a part of it and they agreed to that. And, but it was still for five records and it, it was still had to be sort of weighted in their favor in a way. And I told Steve about it and he was like, look, man, you are going to regret this. Like they're going to give you a bunch of money right now. And that's, you know, money's money, but like, this is a long time and you're going to regret it. I don't think you should do it. And, I don't, if, if it wasn't for his voice, I think I would have. And the whole point of saying that is I don't know what the contracts were like later and how good or bad for the bands that were on the label. It was ultimately in terms of, you know, they had their lifespan while they were on the label, but they couldn't really exist past it. I don't really know, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that the contracts initially were predatory in the way that, um, that uh, there's a long tradition of that with record labels. I'm not singling yeah, no, out absolutely. Brandon, but um but, well, but it was jade tree <laughs> like, yeah I, I i don't have a lot of love for those guys uh, i came out I, we fucked up lost on that deal in the end you know like you know like that's you know i i think as you're saying it's not limited to any one type of record label i think record labels true. there's always a propensity to you know when business meets art yeah and then and then you got the example of yeah it, I, we don't need to go back to that but um but yeah so I do think, oh, but so Steve and I was on the phone with Steve and I was just kind of like, is there anybody who would put out my records? And he was like, man, you know, I dig your tunes. Like, I really think what you're doing is, is interesting, but like, I genuinely don't know of anybody. Like it's such an in-between thing, you know? And then for me, what happened was, is one of the people at Tooth and Nail who had been my connect there, this guy, James Morelos, he quit. Uh, working there and started a label out of his apartment called made in Mexico and to, to put out the first Pedro the line pulling. And I wouldn't have had a foot into the door of putting out records if, if it wouldn't have been for him. So for me, it was actually through tooth and nail, even though I didn't sign with them for any records, except for that, that EP deal that I had a, I had a path to put out records because one of the head, like he was main A&R person if, if I'm thinking about the structure of that place the right way. And he quit and started this label. And he was the one, he put out the first summer hymns things, which was Joe Christmas, Zach from Joe Christmas. And so he, the relationships that he had there with artists that he really liked, he, he tried to do something for us. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's how, but that's how I knew Tim too, because Tim was, a uh, Owen was a photographer that worked for Brandon sometimes and him and, James Morellis became buddies. And at that point, James was like, Hey, cause we got a, a, an offer from some like major label at some point. And James was like, don't do that. 
He's like, at some point go to a jade tree or something like this, but like, that's just not the, that's not the right path. And so I had all this, these helpful voices, um, you know, just telling me like, look out, man. Um, and I didn't, there was some, I didn't heed. I had a lawyer tell me to look out for jade tree too, but, um, that's a different, and I, and I told him like, you don't understand, man. <laughs> same, like, same. Punk, punk rock, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that gets you every time, you know, that's another <laughs> way they're like the same, you know, never trust, a never trust a, a promoter booking at a church and never trust a punk rock record label. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like it's it's funny because oh oh made in mexico also did the coolidge uh thing that just came out too yeah and so that label has been in different forms i think that james morales let somebody else um sort of take the name Mm. and it was dorado and these other folks i think so i think maybe dorado might control that name now okay maybe james is not a part of it at all i i really don't know but but yeah, it was, there was some cool records that, I mean, my uh, buddy, Tim Walsh, um, put out his first records on Made in Mexico and, um, James Morales was a, he is a great person. I, I, I still run into him, but like, it was a very exciting moment, uh, of, of just his love of, of music and wanting to, wanting to put it out into the world um, really was a sweet spot. And it's also like you do, you know, ultimately carve your own lane, but it, it's kind of like C6 Steve said, like you, you didn't really, you wouldn't have fit into any one world. Like you, it's almost like you had to make this career that you've had yourself. Yeah, a, a little bit. And then to be on Jade Tree, like I think I was surprised. I didn't understand what they wanted from my band. Like, cause the record that I had made that at that point didn't seem to fit the mold over there and i think in the end it probably influenced me to make more sort of like heavy records that like i don't know if i would have made control if i wasn't on that label because there was definitely like like they liked it's hard to find a friend but they want they were like oh there there would be comments about how like oh i like they like the fast songs you know what i mean <laughs> 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 they gave me a lot of encouragement about the faster, heavier songs when I would turn them in. And I was like, okay. Well, it's funny because, like, you know, we were talking about, like, the way Fugazi changed everything when they came out. And there's certain records that come out and it's just, like, you know, the ripple effects are felt throughout the whole, like, punk metaverse type thing. And I think Winners Never Quit was like that, too. When that record came out, it's like wow. people changed their sounds. Like, it really was, like, one of those records that you look, you look back upon it and you're like, Oh yeah, there was that way bands were before it. And then afterwards where the people are just reacting to it differently. Cause there was like, I don't like, we're talking about the honesty that you approach songwriting to. It's, it's not like that is always there in punk and hardcore. And I think like even Fugazi at times, like when they're seeing these songs, it's not like, you know, you're, you're hearing Ian's raw emotions on there. You're hearing an intellectualized version of the thing he's singing about. And I, I think it's, Winners Never Quit was like a just pure emotion, like really just raw honesty. I'm having a moment hearing you say that. I don't, um, I, that isn't how I, I haven't had an awareness of anything like that. And so um, I'm really moved that it, it showed up at all for people or, or had, I, 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 yeah, I really appreciate you saying that and hear, hearing that. I, um, I'm just thinking back to that record and, 
you know, you make these records and it just feels like you're kind of pissing into the wind a lot of the time. And, um, and it meant a lot to me, you know, you try to make records that continue to, to, you, to connect with. And I was trying to do something way above my head. Um, but I'm really moved to that, that, that what you're saying was in a thing at all with anybody. I, I think it's also good. when you're in the band when you're living it, like, you know, like that's once again, back to why Fugazi is such an amazing thing is because they're able to remove themselves from just being doing this thing and look at it yeah. from like the outside of the forest. Whereas when you're doing it, like, how do you see yourself removed from it and look at it yeah. as being this thing that's separate from you? Yeah, no, you, it's really hard to, and it's probably not healthy to, <laughs> in some yeah. ways too. It's like good to stay in your, in your experience of it. Um, and, but you know, it's at that time you're going out on tour and it's not like it's a slog. Like, I had, I was really lucky, like, it felt like digging a ditch, but it felt like digging a ditch in dirt that took your shovel, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I grew up in Phoenix, where if you're trying to dig a ditch, you needed to, like, dig off the first two inches of topsoil and then soak the fuck out of it and come back the next day, because you could not get a shovel into that ground. Yeah. And I know people who have had that experience with touring, and it's just like, it's so humiliating and insulting and de demoralizing to just to bang your, your head into the wall. And it was definitely ditch digging for us too, but it was, it was soft dirt. You know, we could get in there and get a shovel full every time. And so it, you still were moving dirt one shovel full at a time, but there was none of the, just like the impossible resistance. So I felt really lucky in that way. But at the same time, you know, you're in a minivan with three other dudes and, you know sleeping in beds together and you know it's 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 not roughing it exactly but it's also it's hard it's not glamorous it's not led zeppelin hopping off a plane with their logo on the tail exactly no <laughs> it, and there's you know you're you're living off of a ten dollar per diem and, yeah. and 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 it's romantic and it's exciting and it's adventure and certainly but it does it it isn't feedback saying like you're doing amazing <laughs> you know yeah. It's like, good job, buddy. Like you made a record and like get out there and, you know, eat shit for uh, six weeks. And, uh, you know, but like I said, that's an overstatement too. Cause it wasn't that way. There were people that you're connecting with, but you don't get this sense of like, you know, validation in the broad sense. It's sort of like you get it in nickels and dimes and if, and you got to like really collect it. And, and if you kind of are bad with money uh, in that way, the metaphor um, you know, it can feel like, like, okay, it's just time to get back in there and do it again, because that's where you really get, that's the, the biggest payoff that you get as a creator is like when you, you press play on that record and you're like, whoa, I made a record. Holy shit. You know, yeah, like that's so cool. <laughs> you get the vinyl back for the first time and you're like, I oh did my this. God, that's a wild feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your songs on a record. It's just I still I just got the new Pedro record back uh on on vinyl uh and uh it it doesn't go away that yeah. Yeah, it feels like, real once it happens. It? Yeah. 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 Well, cuz there's like such like especially growing up in the era of tapes and even like CDRs when you could make a CDR. Like yeah. I could always make that, but a record yeah. I could never make that. You can't do it. No. Yeah. Have you ever gone back and looked at sort of the history of underground music in Phoenix? Cause it's a fascinating story too. 
I have not. I'm, I know about the meat puppets and, I, and a couple of other odd things that broke through, but I really don't know. Huh. It's weird, like, when you look at, like, uh, Don Bowles from The Germs is out of there, and, like, there, okay. you know, there's a lot of musicians that came out of there and went to other places, but the stuff that just came out of there, it's always... I don't, it's just, you know, like, I'm obsessed with ge- geography, obviously, and, like, I think yeah. the fact that artists that come out of there always have a unique take on whatever they're going to be doing, so it's very fitting that that's where your story kind of starts, I think. That's amazing. Um, I'm going to get on Google and just try to find out what I can about that. I'll give you a playlist, but anytime you want to come back here and discuss this stuff, please know, David, you are always welcome. Thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm so moved to be here. Thank you, Damien. Thank you, David, for coming on the show. When you heard right there, David will be back for a part two at some point in the future because my gosh that was a fun conversation to get to have uh once again check out havasu in uh, online streaming places now available in physical format very soon on the great polyvinyl records a fantastic album and uh yeah never he's never going to disappoint you on on the musical front at all you know you, you got you got you can set your watch by his records i think uh, that is it, though, for today's show. Coming up on a few short days in the show. A few short days. We're going to keep the hits coming. You know, we got another hot one coming up for you with the great Charlie from Chubby and the Gang. This is a fantastic conversation with someone I'm a huge fan of. And, uh, yeah, this is a good one. Oh, there's some surprises in this one. I'm excited for you to hear it. Uh, but that will be in a few short days. That is it for today's show. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and nationalities. And We live at a time where you can look around and see the serious shit that's going on in this world. And why would you want to make someone's life harder for them and contribute to the oppression that they are experiencing? So get informed. Get involved in organizations that are doing good work that, you know, you believe in. Uh, volunteer your time, your money. What, 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 get involved in stuff that you believe in because change doesn't happen without you doing it. Uh, speaking of you doing it, make, make your own culture. Why not? Anyone can do this stuff. Start a band, start a podcast, start a fanzine, start a record label, start a clothing company. Well, you know, the world is limitless and you could create something that you believe in and, uh, help create your own culture. You know, you don't just sell something. You just make something, you make it, make a drawing, you know, just, just draw, you don't have to show anyone even it'll help your mental health. And speaking of helping your mental health, try meditating because I didn't believe in that shit. And my God, it, it, it really does work. It really does work, and it's hard to make yourself do it sometimes. Like, I'm not, I'm definitely not perfect at remembering to do it and doing it as much as I should. But when I do, holy Jesus, it feel good. It's like going to the gym. It's like going to the gym for your, for your brain. Uh, speaking of going places, donate uh, your organs when you die. Well, you don't, you don't get to choose to do that when you're dead. So sign your organ donor cards so someone can donate them for you. You're not going to need them when you're gone. Um, and also donate blood if you can too, because, uh, you know, these are all stuff that your body produces and, you know, it'll produce more, give it away, 
The organs, not so much, but you're not going to need them by the time they come looking for them. All right, that is it. I love you. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening. See you on the next episode.